0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. Here's your host, Chris Lee. Commodore fans, on your feet. It's time
1: to anchor down. Welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast, presented by Dr. Jody Jones DDS. It's part of the 440 Sports Network. I'm your host, Chris Lee. Our guest today, Andrew Allegretta. We'll talk Vanderbilt baseball and a little hoops, too. Andrew appears on the guest line that's presented by Michael Kendrick of the Kendrick Group. Michael is a local carpenter and a lifelong Vandy fan. He builds bookshelves, cabinets, picture frames, furniture, and made-to-order items, including a display case for my prized Murphy jersey. I've seen Michael's work. He's a true craftsman. If you're in the market for custom woodwork, give Michael a call, 615-830-9458. Now on to our interview with Andrew Allegretta. Andrew Allegretta joins us today. He's one of the play-by-play voices of Vanderbilt sports. Yesterday, he was at Hawkins Field, where I was also present, calling Vanderbilt's 13-1 baseball win over UAB. On his way home, he was listening to Kevin Ingram's broadcast of the basketball game, as was I. I got to see the last maybe five minutes once I got home. Um, so we'll probably start there first. Andrew, thanks for joining us today. Hope you're doing well.
0: I'm well,
1: how are you chris the do doing well we got a lot going on these days. Yes, sir. All right, hoops uh disappointing loss season's not over by any stretch, but not not the night they needed for sure. Liam Robbins comes one rebound from a triple double, but which would have been amazing, but <laughs> frankly. I think, got out, played by K.J. Williams, who just was unstoppable, in particular in the second half.
0: You know, I think the perspective that I walk away from, Chris, on this one is um, not to try to overly spin a performance that all of us I think probably should have been different, and I expect the coaching staff and the players feel that way, but going into last night, if the perspective is NCAA tournament for the Vanderbilt men's basketball team, I I think we recognize that they were just starting to creep onto the bubble and certainly likely needed a significant run at the sec tournament to really feel confident about a situation where they could get into the NCAA tournament. You were just starting to see some of those projections where it was like next four out Vanderbilt or whatever it is. So not that the loss is okay, I think you were still in a situation that you had a couple of tough games, Florida, Kentucky, Mississippi State, we'll see, uh, down the stretch. And unless you were to run the table and run the table maybe two or three games in the SEC tournament, that was sort of the only plausible path, I guess, without winning the tournament. So you're sort of back into a situation where you may have felt before that if you wanted to get into the NCAA tournament, it was going to have to be done. Uh, at Bridgestone at the SEC tournament. So look, not good. Um, I'm sure all of the players and coaches uh, certainly don't reflect on last night and feel anything other than disappointed. Uh, but you may be back in a situation that you were already in anyway, uh, which was a really hearty, if not win the whole thing SEC tournament to make the NCAA tournament. So, you know, does it crater the season? Does it do this, that, and the other thing? I don't know. There's so many moments along the way that are really part of the bigger picture of the season, both good and bad. So I, it's a really tough one to swallow 24 hours after. Um, but you move forward, you try to take care of business against Florida. And, again, you might be already in, which is to take care of business at Bridgestone.
1: Yeah, I think if you just want to cover all the remote possibilities – Maybe if they win their last three in the regular season, because that would include a win over Kentucky, which now appears to be, I'm not going to say going to the tournament for certain, but I think Kentucky gets one more win somewhere, and Kentucky's not going to be left out. A Mississippi State team that's a bubble team and trying to get there, that helps the computer numbers a little bit. And then maybe if you win a couple in the tournament against the right teams, but I mean, that's that's a pretty big needle. They got a thread and and if it's not winning out from here to the rest of the season. And and frankly, they there were a lot of teams out there and I started doing the research that had kind of similar resumes that were not even get mentioned as bubble teams. But if you start saying, Okay, how many other teams are out there waiting the weeds that nobody's talking about, there were probably a good Six to eight of those, maybe 10 as well, uh, that were in that camp. That was always going to be a big hill to climb. It was not only going to be passing the teams in front of you that were also in the bubble, passing the teams that were in, uh, and then hoping for no conference upsets kind of thing. But it was also, well, what if some other team like a, a Clemson or a Colorado jumps up and has an unbelievable string to to end the season they were also dealing with that i don't know if that makes fans feel better or worse but i guess the hope now um boring something crazy like that would be you get a good seed in the tournament which they could still get and maybe avoid alabama because it seems like anybody else can get beaten on a given night
0: yeah yeah for sure um and they're still sitting on like three or four pretty darn good wins between Arkansas, Tennessee, Auburn, and the game against Pittsburgh. You sort of made your bed uh, getting off to a slow start. But, you know, Memphis and Southern Miss, they've turned out to be pretty solid programs. You know, losing at VCU, losing the game against NC State, those are those are coin flips. But, you know, that's that's what we know about schedule makeup and the NCAA tournament. I think it's applicable with baseball, with basketball. Like, you feel these moments in the non-conference slate where you have to tip a few games and more than your fair share of a few games to give yourself a cushion in conference play. And they just, they just you know, they tip the Pittsburgh game, they need maybe two or three others to not put themselves quite up against the wall. Uh, and, and I don't think anybody minimizes non-conference or preseason or how everybody wants to phrase those things. I don't know. Um, But, you know, we'll see. They still have a resume out there that that if they can collect a handful of of good wins, whether it's Kentucky or whether it's at Bridgestone, that you can start to force your way back into the conversation. But, you know, like anybody that sits on the bubble man, like you you have done some things to, to force the committee's hand in either direction. That's just if you live your life near or on the bubble that that's what you have done.
1: How crazy would that have been if Liam Robbins had pulled a triple-double last night and they and they still lose? I mean, he, he was one block from it. Um, again, K.J. Williams, give that guy credit for what he did, but I, I don't know. I, I think that <laughs> deserves at least a footnote in this one. I mean, to, to pull off something like that on the heels of the way he's been playing, this, this six- or eight-game run or whatever it's been now that he's had, I guess it's six or whatever, It's just been unbelievable.
0: Right, you don't want to lose those moments. Nobody wants to talk about the positives, um, generally speaking, coming out of losses that you really did not like, but you appreciate moments. I mean, 23 points, 11 rebounds, 9 blocks, uh, I think is what I'm looking at here for Liam Robbins uh, in this game against LSU. That's remarkable. I mean, I, I don't have the context like you, Chris, but he's certainly one of the better post players that this program has seen. In some time, I'm not going to say ever. And he's obviously, to use a phrase I just used, uh, he's forcing the conversation for NBA scouts. I mean, I hope it works out for him on the next level. Certainly, his thing has been uh, staying healthy and understanding his abilities, right? I feel like that was our whole conversation with Liam, um, whether it was last year playing through health issues or the first half of this season. It's like, do you understand exactly how dominant you can be if you're on the floor? Uh, And and it feels like he's understanding that and leaning into what he can be as a basketball player. So, you know, for his own personal sake, I I hope it continues to trend this direction because he's got a chance to make an impact at a professional level, too.
1: There's been so few triple doubles in the history of Vanderbilt basketball that I'm pretty sure that would have been the first one that I didn't see in person.
0: Uh, How many have there been?
1: There have been two. Uh, I believe Brad Tinsley pulled one, and I think Luke Cornett had the other. That is from memory.
0: You know, that's, uh, that's crazy. And then uh, was it, uh, it was Jordan Cambridge, right, that had the very first triple-double on the women's basketball program ever, like ever, ever, last year at the SEC tournament against Texas A&M. So, um, you know, Tim Cortman's had four no-hitters, and the basketball program has only had a handful of triple-doubles, so these stats are hard to come by.
1: I didn't realize Corbin had had four no hitters. Let's see, Rocker, uh, so Lighter, the combined, yeah. and what is the other one I'm missing?
0: So you're referencing the combined from last year, right?
1: Oh, that's right. There was there were there was a combined last year. I'd almost forgotten that. Okay, so he's had two combined yeah. no hitters. Yeah, yeah. One he had one like the first the or second game, year but, he was there. Yeah, yeah. Two yeah
0: two thousand. Let's see, let's see. Let's let's dip into trivia land, Chris. Can you can you pluck? Um, at least one of the pitchers, it was a combined perfect game actually at Western Kentucky in 2003, his very first season. It was like late April, early May. It was a combined, uh, perfect game against the Hilltoppers. Can you name one of the pitchers?
1: Okay. I actually did not cover that team. The first season to cover them was the next season. And I really didn't follow them that year, to be honest. Um, until very late in the season. But I, I'm pretty sure I Jensen I, I Lewis was in an there. An yeah, you're well, I, I'm, excuse, I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna give an excuse and still get it right. I think Jensen Lewis was one of them.
0: Jensen Lewis was the starting pitcher that day.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I got the I got the biggest one of them. Nanana na, na, yeah, Jensen
0: Lewis was the starting pitcher <laughs> and then uh, and then uh, let's see here. I had it written down how quickly I can get there. Jensen Lewis started with Bushman involved strikeouts, and that's the other notable one. Matt Bushman uh, pitched the final two innings to close out Tim Corbin's very first perfect game, 2003 against Western Kentucky.
1: Was it just those two? No,
0: no, no. There was uh, I think there there were like four, right? Three more. Yeah, Yeah. four or five. So I I just I pulled out the notable ones. The catcher that day, Jonathan
1: Douliard. Yeah, who was a I wizard defensively. Announced his name, but he yeah he was the catcher. Yeah, he was he was tremendous behind the play. Phil
0: Clark, C.J. Rodriguez, and Jack Bolter. Those yeah, Juliard, Phil Clark, C.J. Rodriguez, Jack Bolter. Your four catchers for Corbin's four no hitters.
1: Wow, yeah. Here's here's one for you, and I, I you might know this because you probably picked up on this some point, but I think well, this is this is. I'm pretty certain this is trivia time. Okay. Opposing starting pitcher for the first game Tim Corbin ever coached.
0: Uh, yeah, that was uh, Justin Verlander against Old Dominion.
1: That's correct. And a Jeremy Sauer started for Vanderbilt that day.
0: Crazy. Those are remarkable names.
1: I still remember like the, the first game, game I, ever, I ever covered. I was in the press box. In '04, for opening day, they played Southern Illinois, in Sowers pitched, and they won. I,
0: I love, I love baseball nuggets like this. And anyone that listens to the shows either appreciates the fact that I try to drop them from time to time, or gets deeply annoyed that I drop them from time to time. But they're, they're, I mean, even yesterday versus UAB, you're talking about Casey Dunn, who was 17 years at Samford. All-time winning as coach, coach Sonny Deshara, who just blitzed Fandy last year at Auburn, Casey Dunn, played at Auburn with Tim Hudson, went to the 1997 College World Series, and Tim Corbin remembers and knows all of those guys because he was coaching at Clemson at the time, right? So it's all wonderfully and beautifully interconnected.
1: Yep. Yep. Well, um, speaking of pitching, Grayson Carter was something someone asked me the, the last time I'd seen a Vanderbilt pitcher hit a hundred in the game. And I think it was Casey Weathers. I remember being in Lexington in 2007, it was 38 degrees. They got a close game with Kentucky. They think David Price had started. And I think they brought Weathers in at the end. And there's like a ton of scouts behind on plate and he's hitting 101 on the gun out of the pen in 38-degree weather, and I I think that got some attention that night. But I don't know that I've ever seen a Vanderbilt pitcher hit 100 in a game other than what Grayson Carter did yesterday. I could be wrong. Rocker might have touched it a time or two. I can't think of who else would have been a guy who would have hit 100 that I can remember. But anyway, the segue to Grayson Carter here is – Man, that fastball! Is something. It is really kind of an outlier pitch. I'll get into some of the notes I had it had on it in a minute. But I thought his start yesterday. I mean, yes, there are things he needs to work on: secondary pitches and control of that pitch. But um, needless to say, UAB was not having an easy time trying to square that one up.
0: Uh, I'll let you, I'll let you go with your notes on his. Uh... This is, this is life, Chris, when you work at Vanderbilt now. It's like everything and all things is liable for construction at any given moment. So hopefully, I'll close the window here that that's not too
1: <laughs> There, I don't know. Hey, that's actually kind of good something. news, though, isn't it? I, it's, I mean, I,
0: I, I, I live it every day, right? So every time that we come into the office, like you're taking a slightly, not every time, right? That's hyperbolic. But a lot of the times you're taking a slightly different route to your desk because something is blocked off or there's a crane or something like that. So, anyway, um, I'll, I'll tee you up for your notes on the fastball. I don't want to steal your thunder on Grayson Carter's fastball. What do you got on on that particular pitch?
1: Well, this this is preseason notes, and I'm trying to, he <laughs> sort of makes sense of my own notes. Um, his his he's got a four seamer, right? And it sort of plays more like a two seamer, like a, a four seamer the the four seamers that are really good are the ones that appear to rise right because the spin rate is so high that the ball in other words gravity yeah, takes place when a ball yeah well here let me this might be a better way to explain it than whatever it was i was about to attempt okay a four seamer doesn't exactly doesn't actually rise but it has the appearance of rising i think because gravity takes its toll on most on pitches. And because of the spin of that pitch, it doesn't take the typical plane that a fastball takes in, in terms of its sink. And because it, because it stays on a straight line um, on a plane from where it was released longer, it appears to rise when it's actually not rising. Well, Carter throws a four seamer and it doesn't stay on plane that much. It plays more like a two seamer and I'm, Probably butchering some of this, but to my – in my defense a little bit, the person who explained it to me, who's a person that's seen it a lot, I think even had a hard time explaining the pitch. I think because it does not behave like a four-seamer should, especially when thrown that hard, it's kind of an outlier pitch. And I think at first the staff was trying to make it do more four-seam stuff, but I think that at some point there was sort of a realization like, well, wait. Everybody thinks because it's a four-seamer it should do that, and so let's just let it do what it does because nobody's hitting anyway. And so they just kind of rode with it, and you saw how good of a pitch it was yesterday. Again, I don't know that those are the exact words. I struggle to even take notes of what was said, but the person who was telling it to me was struggling to explain it. It's just such an outlier pitch that um, nobody's got anything on the staff quite like it. And of course, some of that's throwing 100, and I've been told he's hit 102 at times with it, too.
0: So I'll kind of attack that in two separate lanes. First off, like you're talking about with fastballs, four-seamers staying on plane, um, that's pitch efficiency. Certain pitches you want really high pitch efficiency, which would be like 98%, 99%. Like a fastball, four-seamer, you want high pitch efficiency because, like you said, it stays on plane. And it makes it more difficult for the hitter to gauge where it's going to finish, right? That's why the elevated fastball is, is such an attractive pitch if you can do it properly. It's, it's almost impossible to catch. An elevated fastball, top of the zone, if you place it well, especially if it's got good pitch efficiency, it's, just, it's going to be a nightmare. Some pitches you want really low or less than pitch efficiency, which means it stays off the projected plane. right? You're talking about your breaking balls and stuff like that. So that's part number one there. Um, What I know about Grayson's fastball, and I'll take your word that it's a four-seamer versus a two or whatever, is it almost behaves, um, as I was hearing it, for as simplistic as you can put it, like a sinker. What it does is it cuts down its downward motion as he throws it, by the way, at 99 at 100. So Coach Corbin said yesterday in our pregame conversation that he hits the bottom of barrels, meaning that his fastball becomes a ground ball pitch, which is really difficult. So he's an advantageous pitcher who can throw 98, 99 with downward cut, a little bit like a sinker. I'm not calling it a sinker, but I'm just saying that for lack of a better term. It hits the bottom part of barrels, and now all of a sudden, you're getting a lot of ground outs. Um, now, he's got to control it better. He's got to be consistent with it. He still needs a secondary pitch. His best secondary pitch is his curveball, but that's a distant second. At the moment, it's an upper 70s, low 80s curveball. And it's just, at the moment, it's sort of a get-me-over pitch to, to throw things off. So he's not a complete pitcher by any stretch. The other thing that Grayson Carter has done, like a lot of these guys, is he has put on some significant weight. That dude looks like a bowling pin out there. I mean, he's, he is a sturdy, strong dude. He has put on weight in the offseason. He's worked really, really hard at his pitching mechanics. Uh, they made some small adjustments, which he was telling me at one point in time, and they escaped me at the moment. Um, but he is an elevated pitcher from what he was last year. Someone that threw, I think, five and a third, pitched sporadically again, flashed that velocity, uh, velocity, but never really had it contained. Uh, he's going to be a factor this season. Is he a weekend factor? I don't know. Is he a consistent starting factor in the midweek? I don't know. He's got to command and control the thing better because he is both a weapon and the positive and a negative with the velocity of that fastball. But Coach Corbin wanted to and then hesitate call him the most improved pitcher on the staff, which says a lot because there's a lot of really good pitchers on their staff. And if he thinks Grayson Carter is one of the most improved, then you take note of a performance like yesterday.
1: I don't think he threw his curveball once yesterday.
0: I, I, he? Saw once, I, I, saw, okay. I saw it once, maybe twice. I saw it once, maybe twice. I mean, it was... I mean, you talking about like a ninety to ninety-five percent fastball clip yesterday against UAB. Uh, it, it came in there a couple of times, and, and I only know he threw once because I remember being so. Hard. Oh, a curveball!
1: <laughs> this season of the Vandy Sports Podcast has been made possible by my friend Dr. Jody Jones DDS. When it comes to general or cosmetic dentistry services, Jody is the best in Nashville. Just check out his client list. It testifies to that. He sees movie stars, music stars, athletes, coaches, you name it. Jody is the dentist of choice for stars in Nashville, but he sees regular folks like you and I as well. What people love about Jody's office is the ambiance. It's relaxing. It's friendly. Go see Jody Jones today. Thank him for his support of this podcast because without it, this season would not be possible. I've got Vila. Okay, wait. He did throw – the second pitch of the second inning was 87. It was a ball, whatever that was. The scouting report I had on him was that he had a fastball that was 95-99. It had hit 102, a curve – or excuse me, a changeup that was 85-87 – and a curve that sat around 75-79. So he was throwing something, a couple pitches around 90 or 91 yesterday, and I don't Mm -hmm. know if that was – okay, he did have one that came in at 79. I would presume that was the curve. And he had a couple 90-91. I guess that was the change that was thrown a little bit harder than he normally is perhaps? Yeah.
0: Probably. I mean, he's still a work in progress in terms of an in-game pitcher um, using and manipulating three pitches. Um, so if if you're getting X miles per hour out of Grayson Carter and a bullpen session on one pitch, it would not be surprising, I don't think, to get a different uh, miles per hour in-game action.
1: I'm interested to see... Look, I didn't think their first weekend pitching was very good, but I, I'm not not bullish on the staff still i mean i i, I know that's kind of a, a captain obvious take but i just think they still got so many pieces i think that what we probably saw in arlington was an outlier yeah. i'm
0: actually so you're not bullish on the staff or you are bullish on the
1: staff. i said i'm not not bullish which means i am oh you're I not yes okay i got
0: it. so you're 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 drifting toward bullish, but you're not convinced just yet. I got. Well, it. I'm I'm um,
1: I'm backing into a compliment that I think is there, but uh, tr- while trying to acknowledge that it wasn't pretty a lot of the weekend, uh, especially on Friday and Saturday.
0: Yeah, so I give Carter Holton some grace. I think expectations are otherworldly for him, and then two, he didn't pitch a ton, right? So he pitched in. Um, The Netherlands, part of the collegiate national team, and then then took a lot of time off to rest his arm, which was very, very necessary for Carter. So, I mean, he was pitching some of those scrimmages leading up to the start of the season, and when everybody else had pitched in the fall and pitched in the spring, he was sort of a few steps behind, which is not a negative thing. I'm not saying they should have thrown him and they didn't. I'm saying that his arm needed the rest, right? Like, that's just basic health, strength and conditioning, and recovery stuff. So he's going to take a couple of outings, I think, to get the feel and the crispness back. Remember, um, he was lights out to start last season. He hit a hiccup. He got just pummeled by South Carolina and then went through that stretch of 24 and two-thirds. I believe that's the correct number, scoreless against teams like Texas A&M, Georgia, uh, Arkansas, um, he was remarkable. So I, I think he's going to warm up into being that sec pitcher of the Year type pitcher. I don't know if he gets it because of the rest of the league, right? I'm just saying that he will lean into that level of caliber throughout the course of the season. I, I, I'm, I'm bullish on Hunter Owen. Um, you talk about, you talk about metrics plus intangibles, Hunter's got that. He's got a curveball that some of these guys would tell you is when effective, major league ready now. Again, when effective, he's not consistent with it yet. And he's got the intensity, but he's learning how to control it uh, better this season. I, I think he could be a guy that sticks in the rotation. And then you've got that last spot that's going to be interesting, whether that remains to be Devin Futrell, uh, whether that you know, goes to Sam Loboke or that goes to Andrew Ducanich or whatever. I think you've got options. We're not even talking about, you know, Pat Riley and Grayson Carter. And if Grayson Moore can be consistent, um, I, there's, I think a lot of what this pitching staff becomes is a between the ears situation. I think there's so much talent on this pitching staff and what will separate an unbelievable pitching staff from a pretty good pitching staff is guys coming into their own skin and having confidence, Um, with their abilities. Uh, That means a Pat Riley throwing strikes. That means Grayson Moore throwing strikes, Grayson Carter throwing strikes. Uh, Hunter Owen believing he's an SEC weekend-type pitcher. Not saying he doesn't, but there's a difference between doing it and thinking it. Um, Andrew DeCannage developing. I I think he's got got Moxie to burn as a freshman. It's just going to be a consistency thing and a repetition thing for him. So much of, again, just to say it and put a finer point on it. I think what this pitching staff becomes, whether it's elite or just incredibly good, is the difference between the six inches from ear to ear and how much they grow and mature um, within their confidence levels.
1: Yeah, I'm told Owen has got the best stuff on the team. He's got a two-seam, a four-seam. Two four metrically, metrically. Yeah, right. Yeah. Metrically. I mean, it doesn't always so play that way, wanna, right? But yeah.
0: yeah if, if you subscribe to the metric stuff, Hunter Owen's stuff is remarkable. I mean like truly remarkable uh and I may have I may have noted this story of course hunters from where I'm from and I was going to the beach one day uh last summer uh and I remember driving by this big open field um in South Portland which is where he's from I'm from maybe like 20 minutes down the road you have to go through South Portland to get to the beach um typically speaking and I was like who the heck is throwing a baseball in a Vanderbilt hat I go oh I bet that's Hunter Owen and I drove right past and sure enough, I didn't have a chance to stop, but like, Oh yeah, there's Hunter Owen uh, getting his rehab in uh, at a big open field in South Portland last year. So that was a fun moment for me personally, but um, he, he's got great stuff, but you know, again, there's so much of this as Corbin would say, or any one of these people would say is like you get out there and then you establish a confidence from doing it um, that some of these guys don't have just yet which is, which is okay. They've not been at it's, it, it's a weird blurred line between being a very old team and a pretty young team. Uh, you know, you've got the older guys and Schultz and Maldonado who have done it before. Um, yeah, Holton's done it. Uh, Devin Futrell has done it. Uh, but you know, there's, there's a difference. There's an age thing there that they haven't done it quite as much. And guys like Hunter, while not young are stepping into roles that they haven't occupied before. So, um, I, I, it's stuff wise, this staff top to bottom. I mean, I know people might say Tennessee's got the best staff or LSU's got the best staff or whatever. I just, I buy into the fact that Vanderbilt has the best staff. It's, it's an execution thing from some guys growing into spaces that they haven't occupied before.
1: I get the impression, uh, based on info for a guy or two that all these guys just aren't anywhere near stretched out yet, which kind of brings me to where I was going to go next. And that's Sam Laboki. I thought Sam looked really good for, oh, I don't know what it was. Maybe thirty pitches until it sort of fell apart. In the was that the TCU game or the? I think it was. Yeah, wh- whatever game where it fell apart. Like it was the four seamer was really playing up. He looked like the same guy it was throwing strikes, and then it just went and unwound and unwound pretty quickly. And maybe that's on the coaches for not getting him out of there. But I thought. To the point that he ran out of gas or whatever the case was, I thought he looked great too.
0: I I agree. I was kind of thinking about it, and I'm trying to pull up a box score from last year. There was a lot of connected baseball that they were playing. Um, Sort of that three innings, three innings, whatever, pitching staff type of stuff last year. Um, And and I suspect we'll see some of that at the start of the season again this year. Um, Nick Maldonado went four innings in a game against Oklahoma State to start the season and they handed it off after that. Um, let's see on Sunday, I think Carter Holton went four innings against Oklahoma state and then they handed it off to Christian little and Hunter Owen. So they, they tried to play some connected baseball last year. And, and I think your point is very, very valid, Chris, that it's, it, it's a matter of getting these guys stretched out and, uh, it's a matter of getting them built up on their pitch count. Most of those guys were sitting about 70 pitches, at Globe Life. That was their target number. Um, and in April and May, if they need to go 90 to 100, they will. So they're not there yet. And the other piece and the component of it is some of these guys that you're going to trust and depend um, to come through for you in conference play and NCAA tournament play, they, they they need to be in the moments to pitch through problems, whether that's Dukanich as a freshman or Luboki coming back from his uh surgery. Uh so look, um it's it's the old like a punt is not a bad play in football sort of situation. Like it's o it's okay if strategically within the course of a game or a season uh to punt the football away. I'm not I'm not saying you're conceding losses. That is not at all what I'm articulating. Just that if you give up, it's worth the risk is my point of giving up a couple of runs in the moment, very early in the season, I think, to help these guys grow within their confidence to pitch through trouble. If you yanked up, I mean, isn't that, I mean, listen to Corbin talk about, um, raising children, right? I mean, he talks all the time about what it means to be a parent, uh, a step parent in his case, but still a parent and, and help your children be in moments that are uncomfortable, But through the leash that you give them in uncomfortable moments, they grow. Well, you think he's not going to do that on the baseball field? So I I think there's some of that going on, too.
1: Yeah, I think um, you're right. And I've seen him do that. And I think Tim has lost several games in regular seasons that, yes, he could have made different moves, but it allows you to kind of find out a little more what you have and what you don't have. Which he would rather find that out in February, March, and April than in May and yeah, June. Of course. of course so there's so there's that, but yeah, I mean that's I know it frustrates fans at times, and I'm thinking boy I would have I would have made the move there, but I have also seen it pay off on the back end uh, many, many, many times, so there's that. the other yeah. thing here's the thing I'd really like to know. and I don't know if you have any insight on this or not, but If the first couple days go differently, I wonder if Devin Furtrell starts Game 3 out in Texas. Now, look, I think that he and Cunningham played perfectly in that park. They don't have overwhelming stuff, and they can give up some fly balls that are not going to leave there that might leave other yards. You saw what he did last year at the Sound Stadium. Was it First Tennessee Park where he pitches the complete game out there, which you don't see much? The other dynamic with that, of course, is they don't have a lot of lefties. And Holton's a lefty. Owen's a lefty. So if you've got Futrell coming out of the bullpen as sort of utility guy, that gives you another option in relief. I'm very curious about that dynamic because really the only other pitchable lefty they have right now uh, is Ryan Ginther, who also struggled a little bit. I don't know that he's right where they want him yet either. So that that's a lot contained in the <laughs> the preamble to whatever question was in there, but I'm, I'm very interested well, in how that all plays out and when it. he gets the ball. Yeah,
0: no, I, I hear you. I hear you. The starting rotation last year was Chris McElpine, Nick Maldonado, Carter Holton. And we finished with Carter Holton, uh Devin Tuchkrail, and Chris McElpine, right? Um, something along so. those lines. So it's going to. Yeah. Uh, so it's going to shift and change. I, I don't know the dynamic. I don't have an answer to your question of, you know, if Holton goes seven innings, do they go to Labokey out of the bullpen? I don't know. Um, you've, you've absolutely hit the nail on the head in terms of Devin Futrell's stuff. Um, he finds a way to get out, but he typically does somewhere often than not by um, playing the ballpark, which is fine. Like, we get so wrapped up in strikeout numbers. And by the way, Vanderbilt's pitching staff just torpedoed people through the first, what is it, five games at this point with a bucket load of strikeouts. So it's not like they're lacking strikeouts. Um, yeah, you'll have to be careful. I mean, Devin Futrell got popped against, um, what was it, LSU and Tennessee last year, but so did a lot of people. And I don't think Devin, is funny. Um, Devin's not overwhelming, so it's, it's easy to see like why you would be cautious about Devin Futrell. Um, I'm not sure he gets the credit that he deserves for pitching pretty competitively on a Friday night against Arkansas at bomb Walker. I mean, that's you talk about, you've not been in this situation before. Here's the baseball go try to win us a Friday night game against the three backs who are ranked fourth. Uh, and then turning around and helping save the season, um, Against Oregon State in Corvallis in Game Six of that regional, it's not for Devin Futrell against a not an SEC level offense, but they had some pieces with Jacob Melton and a few other guys in that lineup. Um, you know, he he pitched well in some games down the stretch, but you know, I, I do think because of his stuff, like you said, fly ball pitcher and is not a high below guy or whatever. Um, you've got to be mindful of matchups and the number of times through the order. And all of that sort of stuff, ballpark situations, and so you know, I don't, I have no idea where that goes. I've got no idea if Utrell settles in as the third starter or if he becomes a utility guy or whatever. He's he done enough to to prove that he's deserving of a chance to compete at a very high level.
1: Okay, two issues on offense that are sort of the focus of conversations right now. And then we'll get to the mailbag, and I'll get you out of here. Number one would be the catching situation. Alan Espinall has had two starts. He's hit three home runs. He hit home runs in very different varieties yesterday. One was a line drive that I, I joked I got about eight feet off the ground, which was being facetious, but I, it didn't. It certainly didn't get high off the ground. It was a laser beam. It was, I think, 113 off the bat. The other one was more of a moonshot over the the monster, Defense, of course, is his forte. Look, L&S Ball is not going to win the SEC batting title, but if he catches and hits for some power, I think he's going to find plenty of time. They also like Jack Bolger. Uh, he's been a three-year starter. He's been a guy that they roll out there in front of media, which always tells me that's a guy that behind the scenes does the things that they like in terms of how they handle themselves and lead others in the program and that kind of guy is always going to get chances for the most part. I'm very interested to see how the catching situation works out. My guess is you're going to see two starts for each during a given week, of course the third game being a midweek, but I guess we will wait and see how that goes.
0: So my answer would come off of punch to start with, uh, the first one being um, they have – historically does not mean they will continue pair Jack Bolger with Carter Holton uh, in part because of Carter's velocity and being a lefty relatively rich, which helps Jack in terms of catching base stealers. Um doesn't mean they'll keep doing that but again historically that's sort of been how they've helped Jack not to say Jack's a bad catcher his arm strength is not Alan Espinal's arm strength, um, but he still catches a pretty good game. Generally speaking, uh, his offense has to come along. Um, and that's the part where I feel for Jack um, because I think if he gets beat quote unquote by Alan Espinall throughout the course of the season, I don't know that it's going to be Jack's catching ability that catches up with him. Um, I think people recognize that his arm strength is something that you can test, but he's still a very smart cerebral catcher handles the pitching staff very, very well, all of that sort of stuff. He's a good receiver. um, But he's not been able to find a consistent approach at the plate uh, and consistent results. I mean, he was on an absolute tear last year between, I think, like Auburn and Florida had that walk-off against Florida, but he's not been able to be consistent with it, which um, I I hurt for Jack because I know everybody in the program certainly believes and have long since felt that he's – he's a next level hitter. Um, he's got that sort of strength. Um, we saw what he can do at times when he gets a hold of baseballs. I mean, there you exit kilos are right there with anybody else um, and he hits moonshots. So, you know, you talk about some guys that I think between the ears on the pitching staff have to mature and grow with their confidence and all of that sort of stuff. I don't want to imply that Jack um, is not a confident person. He's a very, very confident person. I think the coaching staff would tell you that um, he's so smart that sometimes he gets in his own way. Um, you, you overthink things and you're a smidge slow or whatever. So getting people with that level of intellect to not think is like against their DNA. So I, I feel for for Jack as he tries to navigate um, being that guy in the SEC, uh, because the skill set is there. he's just he's got to do it. and in terms of they roll him out. And talk to the media. Yeah, he, he's he's that smart. He's that capable of being a Vanderbilt student athlete, both on the field and off the field. He'll do the right thing. He's good with people in the community. All of that sort of stuff. Like he's a great person. Um, I, I just if if he gets quote unquote passed by espinal I, I think it's going to be a bad that that sort of does it, and and not necessarily because Espy's hitting 400, um, but because Espy's doing enough at the plate, shows some power, like you said, Chris, and, and is a superior defender. Um, I think Jack understands cerebrally is that a word intellectually, um, being a catcher, maybe a smidge more than Alan Espinall right now, not to say Alan's not smart. He's, you know, the coaches will tell you he's a self-taught English speaker, right? He's ESL, but he's self-taught on the English side. So he's very smart. Um, but Espy's a better package behind home plate. So we'll, we'll see where that goes. Um, and i don't I don't think Corbin's going to be in a rush to make a decision, right? He, he's going to got We just mentioned the fact that he caught a no hitter last year. Um, they're going to let that ride for a little while and try to give everybody um, their due chance. I mean, like the, the flip side of this, Chris, and apologies for the lengthy response is that you're going to get to SEC play, and I'm not saying SP can't hang. He can hang, but like Teams are going to throw him really difficult breaking pitches over and over and over again and, and make him prove that he can lay off of it. And if he can prove that he can lay off of it, all of a sudden SB is a different hitter. But when he looked overwhelmed at the plate last year, it was, it was, it was because of that. It's because he was swinging at pitches out of the strike zone. And that gets a whole heck of a lot more difficult in SEC play. So there's, there's hurdles for, for both guys. And again, I don't think Corbin's going to be in a rush to make a decision on anybody.
1: Yeah, they like both guys a lot. Uh, Corbin has always talked about the the kind of teammate Espinal is and those kind of things. And, and of course, again, when they throw a guy out there in front of the media a lot, like when we have media sessions where it's not after a game, because after a game, you're getting the guy who starred or was a starting pitcher or whatever. When you just get a midweek media session, the guys they put out in front of you are generally going to be older guys who represent the program the way the coach wants the program represented. Now, that's not going to be the, you know, the the guy that gets ten at bats. It's going to be somebody who's playing a role of significance. And so, when they've been bringing Bulger as that guy to us, that tells you a lot about what they think about him. The yeah, Espinal a neat story too. If you want to go to our YouTube channel and catch the first two minutes of our interview with Tim Corbin yesterday, he talks a lot about Espinal's background. He was a kid who had moved to America, didn't know English, just, you know, and then like anybody else, learning a new language is a challenge. And when he found out Vanderbilt was an option for him, I think he really stepped up his work on that and academically and everything so he could earn a spot on the roster, which he did. But it's crazy. He taught himself English by watching cartoons, which is just yeah, a phenomenal that's story. story. That's that's like a long form yeah. journalism piece that I don't have time to write. Yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah two, two guys to. that you can be happy for in different ways.
0: Yes, yes, sir.
1: Okay, the other thing is odd man out somewhere, right? Because you've got a situation where right field is sort of a, I don't know that it's a revolving door, but between that and DH, you've got some usage issues, right? You've seen Matthew Polk take a seat. You have seen... T.J. McKenzie play some. I think my impression was that you might see something along a platoon in left or or sort of a timeshare between that and D.H. with Hewitt and with McKenzie and Polk. Well, Hewitt has just hit the cover off the ball and and sort of locked down left field for the time being. You've seen Shrek move to D.H. a little bit. You've seen McKenzie play a little bit in right. Uh, Point being is that I think if you – Just for the sake of this exercise, let's presume that you give left field to Hewitt and you give Shrek a spot in the lineup that might be DH, that might be right field. You kind of got an odd man out situation between Matthew Polk and TJ McKenzie, both who've really shown some things at the plate early, both who I think can really hit, which You hate to have resources on the bench, but truth is, you're probably going to get a guy hurt at some point in the season and need that extra guy. And so that's kind of a good spot for them to be in in late February is have a hitter who deserves to be playing that's having to sit because other guys are also hitting.
0: Yeah. Uh, I I think I probably, not as a cop out, would retreat to my my previous answer about. Corbin and Baxter are not going to be in a rush to designate anybody at any particular position this early. Um, Right back to the whole you rent, not own your position sort of thing. Um, I suspect that Hewitt and Bradfield will take a lot of the innings in left and center field. And from there, we'll see. Now, Matthew Polk can get himself onto the field at another position, if necessary. Um, if And I suspect we'll see some of this eventually. And I don't know when. I don't know when it's going to be thrown into the mix. Like R.J. Austin, for example, um, goes to first. Jonathan Bastine goes to second, which would allow you to get all of those guys in the lineup at some point in time. Um, if perhaps Parker Nola needs to take a seat or a day off or something, or Parker plays DH, I don't know. But you, you could conceivably have McKenzie in right field, Shrek as the DH, and Matthew Polk at second. Uh, that's plausible. I mean, you could slide Davis Diaz back to third uh, if you need to. And, again, bounce RJ Austin to uh, short, and Matthew Polk plays second if Vastai needs a day off. I mean, there's a lot of combinations here. The fact that, that Pokey is flexible between probably right field and second, I would hunch that those are the two logical places for him. Um, Gives him the opportunity to get more at bats. And, and I think, you know, if you're just lining up, a hunch, you've got based on skill set, not 100% results. If you're taking the three players in question, McKenzie, Shrek, and Poke, who are your two better hitters? It's going to be Shrek and Polk and McKenzie's probably the odd person out there, but really, really good and really, really serviceable when needed. Um, of course, went two for four with two doubles on Sunday against Texas, so I don't want to shrug them off. Um, I think again, the version of kind of this little Rubik's cube you've presented Chris is the fact that Matthew Polk does present an infield option uh, if needed, if you need to get him on the field and mix and match um, with a few other lineups, like Chris Maldonado is going to get himself some innings at some point in time in the infield. Uh, and you could do Maldo at third, Pokey at second, uh, Jonathan Vastein at short, RJ Austin at first base. Like they, Austin's movable, Vastine's movable, Davis Diaz is movable, Matthew Polk is movable. It, it, it creates options if you need it for Coach Corbin.
1: Are you ready for the mailbag? Yes, sir. The mailbag is presented by Sutherland and Belk, a family-owned injury law firm. If you or a loved one has been hurt in an accident, give Taylor or Russell a call, 615-846-6200. See what your rights are and if they can help. Okay. Ann Arbor door says, Andrew, you mentioned the team practice this year with wood bats. Do you know if they've done that in the past, or can you expand on why you're why they're doing that? And I adds you and Kevin do a great job with the anchor podcast.
0: Oh appreciate the second part there um which which I believe will be recorded as soon as we're finished. Um, I think um, wood bats um, yes, they have done it before. it's not new, I don't think it's regular, but it's something they felt was appropriate for this team. Um, this team, meaning that they're not going to slug a bunch of home runs. That's not the way that they're designed. Um, wood bats will expose flaws in your swing, uh, in a good way, right? Um, it helps you track your swing path better. And the reason that swing pass is significant is, uh, at least from a coaching standpoint, the longer you can keep your bat in the strike zone, right from the front of the plate to the back of the plate from, you know, um, right to left, the more chance you have to make good contact on a wider range of pitch velocities, even if your timing is not perfect, That's one of the things that Sonny Deshara was so good at. The reason he squared everything up is because his swing pass was so darn flat and in the strike zone. Um, There is such a conversation around launch angles and all of this sort of stuff, which is fine. Um, We understand that that's how you get home runs. Um, But you can get home runs from a flat swing. I mean, it's just a matter of where you catch the baseball. The benefit of a flat swing is that if your timing is just a little bit off, you're still going to square it up and hit it to the opposite field, or perhaps your timing is not so off on a changeup and you can still um, pick up a single to left field instead of yanking a pop-up down the left field line as a right-handed hitter. Again, back to the point with wood bats is that practicing with wood bats exposes your swing path more consistently versus metal bats, which will give you the satisfaction of the ping and all of that sort of stuff, but might expose you to some back-end issues. Um, It's not consistent. It's just something that, you know, um, we've offense feeling a little bit more like the 2010-11-12 seasons um, where they could score a bunch of different ways. It was very connected offense, all of that sort of stuff, Tony Kemp, Connor Harrell, all that kind of stuff, versus 2019, which is going to lead the nation in home runs they They want the home runs they want the three run bomb they got one from Alan Espidal um yesterday, right they got two a three run shot and a solo shot two yeah um so they want those yeah they they want those things um but there's a belief that that attacking and approaching it this way is going to give you a wider range of success when done consistently so that's that's the purpose of the woodbats
1: yeah, they also got one from Polk yesterday, and of course one from Vastine the day before the yeah, man, that thing was hit a long time. Yeah, oh, way. I mean, you,
0: oh, <laughs> you you can still hit moonshots, and the exit velocities are great, and all that sort of stuff, right? Like it, it's it's not to say they don't want home runs; they want home runs. If they can hit a bunch of grand slams and win sixteen to nothing, cool, that's great. It's just the pitchers are so good that expecting your timing to be perfect all of the time is probably unlikely. So by keeping this, what's considered a flat. Um, bat pass and you keep your bat in the zone as long as possible, uh, you just open up your opportunity uh, for picking up a wider range of hits rather than I'm going to strike out, pop up, or hit a four run, uh, a grand slam moonshot to center.
1: Yeah, I've got a couple interesting things I'm picking up off the stat sheet, but I'm going to save those uh, maybe for next week. I want to see how that goes this weekend and (laughs) save myself some material for the future. Okay, last question, and I think you probably hit on most of this, but I'll give this one to you as an opportunity to tie up any loose ends. And some for you, here, you're Andrew. The fans, we're looking at this four-game hoop stretches, three-and-one or hopefully a 4 and zero scenario to get on the NCAA tournament bubble. Losing to LSU, was the lowest, which was by far the lowest-ranked team on the list, was an extraordinary disappointment with so much on the line. Talk us off the ledge.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, I I guess I would probably, again, note the whole conversation previously about in all likelihood, if your goal was the NCAA tournament, you were probably still in a situation where you needed to make really strong waves at the SEC tournament. And that hasn't necessarily changed, which I'm not glossing over the loss. It was, it was interesting, um. Driving around, uh, I think yesterday, perhaps, before the game, before baseball, I was listening to 102.5 The Game and Chase McCabe was on there talking and and referenced Willie Donick's uh, aversion to the word should, like should win a ball game. Uh, And I guess Willie gets chippy with Chase and those guys anytime someone says you should win a ball game. And that's coming from an ex-athlete, obviously, right? Um, Yeah, I as an outsider and a former non-athlete, I believe a still non-athlete would be the appropriate term. Um, I, I can understand and respect the verbiage should. In fact, I would, I would claim that Vanderbilt probably feels like it should have beaten central Arkansas on Tuesday. Um, but yeah, I, I, don't know. Um, I don't, I don't know maybe throw a few more planks out there and extend the ledge for yourself. I I don't know. It it, it was a tough one. Um, It it obviously was a tough one. Um, I don't know if they're supposed to win or what, or, you know, having somebody go off for 30 plus is difficult to swallow. Um, So we'll we'll see. Um, Let it ride. Let's see what happens against Florida and see if they can do some damage at the SEC tournament.
1: Going to be a busy weekend for you, um, so You've got three baseball games, three huge games with UCLA. That's a big, big series. that could have some postseason implications. Basketball game this weekend coming up. Got a lot to talk about. My goodness, by this time next week, spring practice is going to have started too uh, because I needed one more thing to do right now. But in any case, I'm sure I'm going to see you out at Vanderbilt <laughs> at one or more of those venues Uh Anyway, look forward to having you on next time. And before you leave, anything that you guys want to promote with the Anchor podcast or anything else like that, the floor is yours to do it.
0: Uh, nothing major. It's just, um, you know, one thing we didn't note in this uh, conversation is Enrique tied Charles de France for her career. Oh, yeah. Base mark at Vanderbilt last night with 96. So uh, the next thing he picks up will be 97, which will be the program record. Uh, we have a conversation with Charles de France. Uh, up on the Anchor podcast now, which if you don't know, like he's a Vanderbilt lifer. He works, you know, right down across the street from the Holiday Inn at the police department. Like he is, you talk about student athletes that are serving their community after they graduate, like that guy's doing it. Like he's in charge of security for, I, I think all of like Vanderbilt's hospital complexes. Like, I mean, he has got a really significant job and a fun guy to talk to uh, yeah, I mean, don't forget to check out the baseball games throughout the course of the weekend, 95.9, 560, WNSR, and of course the Vanderbilt Athletics app, which, um, uh, you know, I, I I love our Vanderbilt Athletics app. It it has functioned really, really well for us this year. At least I think so. Uh, if people have questions, complaints, concerns, feel free to, to shoot a note, but that's been a really accessible way to get all of our broadcast from baseball, women's basketball, men's basketball, football. Um, I'm really happy with we're that sucker. So whether it's the radio broadcast or pulling up uh, the Vanderbilt Athletics app, I hope you can jump on a broadcast at some point in time throughout the course of the year.
1: Thanks for joining us, my friend. As always.